The Guardian. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Media Talk from the Al Jazeera Media Forum in Qatar. This week, blogging the revolution, did Facebook and Twitter fertilize the Arab Spring? One thing that was very inspirational to us using alternative media was actually watching the revolution in Tunisia. People watched it and said, we can do that. A new force in news, Al Jazeera English gets global recognition. People started to realize the importance of Al Jazeera as a news channel, connecting them to the world. And we are receiving daily offers and we are negotiating with many cable companies at this moment. And a shift in the global media landscape is the information power base moving east. I'm Matt Wells and this is Media Talk. Well, uh, we don't get out much, as you know, but this week I've come a long way out of the Media Talk metropolitan comfort zone. In fact, I'm in the Gulf state of Qatar at a conference organised by Al Jazeera. As the Arab Spring blossomed, Al Jazeera English became the must-watch channel for anyone interested in the unfolding drama. It was also the moment when the rest of the media world started to take it seriously. We'll examine why later on. But I'll also be asking if a channel bankrolled by an Arab autocrat is fundamentally compromised. Now, the main reason we are here is because Al Jazeera have flown us and about 500 other delegates out for their annual media jamboree. It's a bit like the Oxford Media Convention, except with palm trees. Uh, and in the wake of the Facebook-fueled revolutions in the Middle East and North Africa, the organisers hastily rearranged the programme to bring some of the participants in those uprisings together. Well, I'm Lina Benmhenni. I'm a teacher assistant at the Faculty of Human and Social Sciences, but I'm a blogger too. And you played a role in the uh, in the in the Tunisian Revolution, which was, of course, the first uh, of the of the revolutions in North Africa. Can you tell me what what you did and what you've been doing? In Tunisia, the traditional media couldn't speak about what was going on. Uh, they were telling lies and so I covered many demonstrations and and make photos videos and uh, I shared all this on Facebook on my blog on Twitter and I decided to go to Sidi Bouzid and uh, when I arrived there some friends called me and said that a city which is far 38 kilometers from Sidi Bouzid the police just killed five people, so I went there. There were no, there was no media there, and I was the first to took these pictures of the people. But for me, it was it was the first time I I took pictures of of the bodies of uh, dead people. So I, I was doing what the Tunisian journalists couldn't do. Was there opposition to what you were doing? It wasn't easy to do this. Well, I'm considered as a cyber activist. I've been censored for many years. The police followed me for two years now. They even entered my parents' house and stole my, my laptops, my cameras. They were following and controlling me too, so... I was trying to hide myself, not to be clear for them. So, how do you feel now that the government has been deposed, and do you do you feel a sense that there's it's that your goals have been achieved? Well, first of all, I'm happy that the dictator left Tunisia, but not all, all of my goals are achieved. The way towards democracy is too long. We just removed. The the dictator, but the regime is still here, and we are fighting to to, to reach true democracy. 
that was one person's direct experience of using social media to unseat a regime she opposed. But in order for her work to be noticed, it had to be shared and disseminated by others. And as anyone who's followed these developments knows, there are a small number of people with big online followings who were essential in making that happen. Many of them are here at this conference, and I spoke to three of them. Hisham Al-Mirat is an activist in Morocco. Nasser Wadadi is a Mauritanian based in the US who's a bit of a Twitter star. And Wail Khalili is an Egyptian activist with thousands of followers on Twitter. It started on Facebook and Twitter. It happened on the street, and I think this is a very important differentiation. I think it helped people organize and mobilize and, uh, and have quick word of mouth actually going through more quickly. What was more as important was people taking it offline and talking to people face-to-face and making sure that the message happened, that they go together, that they protect each other, that they stand up to... Uh, oppression in the same way. So it was important, but was not the whole story. Uh, do, do, you, do, you, do you agree? Do you think it's the same? Or do you think it's a, yeah. And actually, in context, uh, the revolution started actually, the tide started in Tunisia. And in Tunisia, social media's role, uh, as well as Hisham here with us, uh, myself, what we did, we acted as an echo chamber for the news coming out of Tunisia. And in, in Morocco, Hisham, the, uh, the situation is different because the protests are on, ongoing. And what role um, are, are you specifically playing in that? Personally, I'm not playing a, a, a pivotal role in no, this. but a small role. Yeah, a small role. But I know that Moroccans have learned a lot from what happened in Egypt and Tunisia. And uh, protests are already in the, in the streets. And the information in Morocco is getting more and more controlled, more and more uh, monitored and filtered, etc. The mainstream media in Morocco, uh, whether local or international, is not playing its role anymore uh, because of uh, government restrictions. So here, the social media, the internet and citizen media, uh, quote-unquote, is playing the role of transmitting that information uh, for people, particularly in in the middle class, uh, who might not be aware of what uh, the poor people or the young people who took to the streets are saying, their slogans, uh, their chanting, the images of young ladies and and men uh, together in in the street uh, calling for change, all those things that the the state-run media uh, is not willing to to show. Well, this is important as well, isn't it? Because because in in, in Egypt, uh, certainly before the before the revolution, before Mubarak fell, the state-run media was not broadcasting what was what was really happening. And so social media, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook provides a platform. Absolutely, I think I think we couldn't have the the, the tools at our hand to create and to to raise the level of revolutionary consciousness i mean i'm using a very nice term uh, without without independent and 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 uh, and uh, people journalism and and uh, and social media and blogging and so uh, why because, because they were taking the pictures on Tahrir square absolutely they? even before Tahrir square even with the torture within with the case of khalid saeed even with uh, the small and incidents of torture and youtube one thing that uh, that was very inspirational and, and useful uh, to us using the media the, the alternative media with was actually watching the revolution in tunisia i mean it was uh, uh, one of the key success factors i believe was actually people watched revolution in Tunisia succeeding what we were trying to aim to talk to them is like it's not as easy as it was in Tunisia it turned out in Egypt that it was easier 
But people watched it and said, okay, that's not as difficult as we imagined. We can do that. And, uh, and I think that played a major, major role. And um, however, uh, despite the fact that we call, we call all these revolutions the, the Facebook revolutions, it has still been important to bring in CNN, to bring in Al Jazeera, hasn't it? And what is the, the, the link between social media and mainstream media, do you think? I, th I think all of the success cases that the alternative media, social media, brought up cases and made them a public opinion cases, when, when they managed to bring in mainstream media as well on board, and to have mainstream media talk about it because not everyone is, is getting their news from Facebook or people watch TV, people read news and the, uh, newspapers. The more successful we are in bringing in the mainstream media and forcing them, I'm using this term <laughs> intentionally, enforcing them in paying attention to what's being said and the, the significance of what's being said and uh, uh, how different it is from the main discourse or whatever that mainstream media is being echoing the more successful we are in, in bringing out more people. Did you agree? Uh, I agree, and I'm actually I'm going to give a, a, a sort of a higher level um, um, take on that, which is um, the coverage generally of the Middle East in mainstream media, both uh, Middle Eastern and Western, um, has been fueled for the last five decades by the big geopolitical problems. and Israel-Palestine. Israel-Palestine, the Iraq war, Iran situation, etc. The reality is that we in the Arab world, like the activists on the ground, w on the grassroots level, uh, at sometimes when we turned on the TV screens and went, went to the internet and read the, some of these reports, I f we felt that these guys were in living in an alternative reality. Not what we're living in and what we're seeing. Because it doesn't reflect what was really it, happening. It does not reflect the, the, uh, the, most, uh, the most important conflict in the history of the region, which is the conflict between the people and the rulers. So what so social media um, allowed us to do is to, uh, first of all, uh, backed by facts, videos, pictures, um, put that in the stream, coalesce, act collectively as an Arab solidarity network, uh, that will be uh, pumping information, our view of our reality, and um, also so some of the activists are very savvy. They understand how media works and understands that med modern media sh uh, works in a very intense and short burst uh, uh, cycles that requires uh, uh, buzzwords, figures, and basically the, 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 the element, uh, elements of any story from a, um, a journalistic modern take. That was provided by the activists that, who understood that and th who went aggressively after uh, media professionals in uh, order who, to... Who, of course, are on Twitter themselves. Now, exactly. So you have a direct exactly. means of communication. Exactly. And uh, Twitter, more than Facebook, by the way, was much more effective tool in doing that because it eliminated, uh, it eliminated the intermediary. The intermediary here, we had to call a producer or know someone and go through the hoops in order to be heard. We were like, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to cut to the chase. Right, we've uh, come across town now to the headquarters of Al Jazeera English, a uh, bit of a way out of town in uh, an industrial wasteland, a bit like actually the headquarters of Sky uh, in London, but inside the, uh, it's much plusher of course. Christina from Al Jazeera is taking us around the, uh, the building and we just, um, I just saw a cat. What's the, what's the, the cat? Al Jazeera cat. <laughs> Her name is Morris. <laughs> I think they thought it was a male in the beginning and then 
found out as a female after uh, she started having kids. <laughs> we're just walking into the, well, this looks like the, the newsroom. This is the newsroom, right. That's the main presenter's desk over there. You notice it's, it's open. Presenter's desk and area is not sectioned off. And that video wall that you see in the back there should still hopefully be one of, if not the, but one of the biggest video walls in the broadcast industry. It is, uh, yeah, it's pretty big. It runs about 21 meters long. Okay. One thing you'll notice, by the way, as we're walking through the newsroom, we have a lot of different nationalities that work for Al Jazeera. We have more than 50 different nationalities working with us. Right. So you get interesting editorial meetings because you have representations from lots of different points of view. Yeah. So uh, tell us where we're going now. Yeah, we're heading to the galleries right now. This is where the you know, studio operations team sit. They control the lighting, the sound, the cameras. And here you see in front of you um, where all the cameras are being remotely controlled. Well, I'm joined now by Al Anstey, who's the managing director of Al Jazeera English. Uh, Al, um, could you explain a bit about uh, what the kind of philosophy of, of it is and what you're trying to do with the station? Well, the philosophy is to cover the world. So right now we're looking at our news gathering reach. We're covering some extraordinary stories across across the Middle East, the Arab world. But now with the earthquake, we're covering the earthquake. We've got five teams on the ground in the earthquake. That's a, a very fast-moving, very dynamic story. So our philosophy is to get out there, cover the stories at the sharp end. And, and, and how many people have you got working for you? Uh, we're a staff of in excess of 1,000 people. We've got 35 bureaus around the globe, and obviously the four main centers in Doha, London, Washington, D.C., and Kuala Lumpur. And alongside our sister channel, Al Jazeera Arabic, we've got 70 bureaus around the globe. Y your background is in uh, broadcast news in, uh, in, in Britain. Um, what differences have you, um, uh, have you noticed, and perhaps some similarities as well, but, uh, yeah, uh, uh, coming out here? Um, we're talking about Al Jazeera English, obviously uh, coming from ITN, where I came from, and obviously um, growing up, as it were, with the BBC. Uh, the same standards of journalistic integrity uh, underpin what we do as they do with ITN, as they do with the BBC, as they do with the American networks. Obviously what we're able to do is, is have that global reach, as it were, be able to have a number of bureaus around the globe and apply that international prism. That's the key difference. Well, I'm, I'm back at the conference venue now, and I can just see uh, Wada Kanfer, who's the Director General of Al Jazeera, uh, rushing between sessions. So let's see if I can grab a quick word with him. What are, what are the ambitions for, for, uh, for Al, Al Jazeera now? Because, uh, of course, particularly with Al Jazeera English, has been now recognised. Hillary Clinton said this week it was real news. Yeah. Um, uh, do you hope to get uh, uh, carriage of Al Jazeera uh, uh, yes, in, in America? We, do you yeah, think that will happen? We are actually negotiating now with cable companies to have carriage in America. And I think through internet and through other mediums, people are reaching to us. And I have found immense interest in you don't need carriage you have the, your internet stream exactly what we are trying we will we will use every platform available you know we are going to do that so this is as far as english channel is concerned this year we are going to launch turkish so, uh, so, so, so you think you think you will get carriage of the english channel yes. on, on a major positive in America. that we are going to get to major cable companies very soon in america because i think people started to realize the importance of Al Jazeera as a news channel, connecting them to the world. And I think we, we are receiving daily offers 
and we are negotiating with many cable uh, companies at this moment. In because there has been, uh, and this goes back a, a, a number of years, uh, a political suspicion there had been a, 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 a political yes. suspicion of Al, Al Jazeera, and then recently we had the WikiLeaks leaks cable, Correct. which said that the uh, the government here here in Doha uses Al, Al, Al Jazeera for its Sorry. political ends. Yeah. Uh, what do you have to say to, to that? There is suspicion about Al Jazeera. It started this suspicion by the war in Afghanistan, and then the war in Iraq, and the Rumsfeld statements, the press conferences accusing Al Jazeera of inciting violence, and so on and so forth, ending with trying to interpret the presence of Al Jazeera, and unfortunately that was a prejudice from the administration, uh, thinking of Al Jazeera as a tool in the hand of the Qataris, or a tool in the hand of Al Qaeda, or a tool in the hand of Saddam Hussein, or a tool in the hand of this and that. My opinion, they did not want to acknowledge and recognize that there are professional journalists in this part of the world who could, like their colleagues in the West, act independently and have a free media. Why not? I mean, why should we always try to find who is behind? this institution and we do not ask the same question about other news organizations. Sure. It is true that, 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 that the, the government of Doha uh, supports of financially, course, financially Al Jazeera. The government of Doha supports Al Jazeera and this is no knowledge to everyone. And the government of Doha supports Al Jazeera but the government of Qatar does not interfere in the editorial policy. You say that categorically. Once they interfere in the editorial policy, Al Jazeera will lose its edge and it will become a propaganda for... And the, our audience are very clever. They are very politicized. They will sense that we are a tool, and therefore we will lose the credibility that we are proud of. You know? So this is why I say you know, any kind of interpretation is very simplistic and sometimes it's very, I mean, uh, it has nothing to do. I mean, the government of Qatar had excellent relationship with a lot of Arab governments. And the same Arab governments closed down the Jazeera bureaus and arrested their correspondents. We have never seen so-called friends of Qatar positive to Al Jazeera all the time, you know, and we have never seen so-called people who are not very helpful, I mean, very good, friendly with Al Jazeera, with Qatar, that they were also hostile to Al Jazeera. It's not necessary. I'm joined now by the uh, Guardian columnist Seamus Milne. One of the things that I think has been noticeable clearly, and a lot of people talked about it, is the boost that the English channel has, uh, has got, because people didn't really take, pay much attention to the to be quite honest, to the, what was seen as a rather sleepy channel. Um, it does seem to have been a turning point, doesn't it? Really, I think it has. They've had so many correspondents in the field and they've specialised in this region as well, uh, and more than other international stations. You know, they've, they've really got the traction now with an international audience. So I think, you know, it has had a real boost. That's when true. it was set up, though, there was criticisms about Zero Arabic from particularly Western governments that it was too close to Al-Qaeda, bankrolled by a dictatorship here, here in Doha, received all those tapes, didn't it, from Al-Qaeda. Um, is, is it hard, do you think, especially as out of English is trying to get carriage in the United States, to kind of shake off that, that lingering suspicion about it? Well, I think, I mean, the, the problems Al Jazeera had with the Western governments goes back to, as you say, to 2001. The, the reason they got those tapes from Al-Qaeda and bin Laden and so on was because they had massive coverage in the Arab world and they were the most popular TV station in the Arab world. And so Al-Qaeda wanted that. And obviously it was a scoop for them, not that they in some way represent that politics, which they clearly don't. Um, and then during the Iraq war, the tensions with the United States built up to the point where, if you remember, George Bush was talking about bombing the the headquarters of Al Jazeera here in Doha at that time. Um, so I, I think because they were covering the resistance to the, Iraqi, the, the US occupation of Iraq in a very graphic way, in a way that other TV stations weren't, 
and of course they were banned in Iraq uh, as well. That all created a lot of problems. But I think if you're talking about you know, the situation now, uh, I mean the fact that it's funded by the Qatari government, um, in reality I don't think is nearly so significant as people say, say, or rather it actually paradoxically gives them a lot of freedom. They do actually have a lot of editorial freedom because that suits the Qatari government. Uh, and its sort of strategy in the region, its policies, foreign policy in the region. Um, because, because the Qatari government wants, wants to get more influence, wants to kind of punch above its rather small weight, you mean? Yeah, I don't think it, I mean, it's, I think it's really wrong to see it as reflecting Qatari foreign policy or policy in the, in the editorial choices. It's rather they want to have, um, exactly as you say, a TV station that is widely admired, that creates, you know, big noise about Qatar. Um, and uh, so I think in practice, you know, they do actually have a lot of editorial freedom, and you can see that by the way the stories are run. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, there's another issue, which is that it was seen by Western governments as incitatory, inciting uprisings in in Palestine and elsewhere, which didn't suit them at all. And of course, that's true in Egypt as well. Um, but now the U.S. government and the West generally is sort of shifting its position on the Arab revolutions. Uh, I think maybe that's not so problematic as it was, or at least uh, in, in, in a sort of on-the-surface kind of way. Back to where we started, um, uh, uh, social media. The thing that I've, the sort of thing I've noticed about this conference is how the panels are still sort of dominated by the political and media elites, despite all the chat, chat about social media having all this new power. And all the, the bloggers and Twitter, Facebookers are all off um, meeting on the sidelines and in, 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 the, in the cafes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think the session that's just starting now is going to have a few more of them. But yeah, no, you're totally right. And, uh, and uh, it's quite funny sometimes seeing the uh, representatives of the revolutionary youth who are well into their 30s, if not beyond. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, you know, it's, a, it's an institution and, uh, and they're dealing with institutional forces and elites throughout the region. And that's definitely the case in the, in the hall, I would say. Um, but the fact is, as, as in Britain, but even more so, people are very excited by the whole new media impact because it's been so huge in the region. So at the very least, they're having to pay lip service to it. But I think to be fair to Al Jazeera, they're not paying lip service in their coverage. It's been absolutely essential. Okay, thanks, Seamus. Uh, now, while we've been here in Doha, the death was announced of Al Jazeera cameraman Ali Hassan Al-Khaba, shot when his crew were ambushed as they returned from covering a demonstration near the rebel-held town of Benghazi in eastern Libya. Chillingly, earlier, the Libyan leader, Colonel Gaddafi, had singled out Al Jazeera as to blame for the bloodshed in Libya. It serves as a reminder of the dangers that journalists put themselves in to cover these stories all over the world. That's it from this edition of Media Talk. We'll be back in the slightly less sunny climes of London next time. But for now, I'm Matt Wells, and the producer was Francesca Panetta. See you next time. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.